He is risen. Christ has died. Oh, we got to do that one again. Christ has died. Now let's go way back. Somebody testify. Oh, we got it. Okay, let's do it one more time so you all know that one. Somebody testify. All right. Along with working on call and response as a congregation, including learning Psalm 125, verse 1 in Hebrew and English, so that next year at the Walk for Life in Rockford, we can make some noise. That's really the goal, okay? This year, we have also been going through a series, How to Read the Bible. And the goal has been to get we who are members at St. Paul to feel more comfortable opening our Bible at home and diving into it because it is the word of life, because it is the source of the Holy Spirit. Because if you want to stand in these evil days with confidence in your heart against the darkened tyranny that is destroying logic and reason and good government and civilization and hope, then the one hope you really have is that he is risen. Alleluia. And he's left these words to keep you alive. He's left these words to be the gleaming sword that you pull out, which comes directly from his mouth, two edges, a law and a gospel, with which to pierce your heart and the hearts of your neighbors, with which to both kill and make alive. And so your comfort with reading the Bible is key to our life together as a congregation and as members of a grander, holy Catholic church on this earth. For that reason, again, then, we've been looking at a different book every week since sometime last September. And this week, we're going to be looking at the book of Exodus. I'm not going to do quite as much of a full survey as we've been used to doing because it's Easter and it's celebratory. So we're going to be a little more standard sermon here. But I still want to convince you that it's possible, it's possible to pick up a Bible and open it and know where you're going, and find something worth going to. And so, let's practice here. If you don't have your Bible with you, and by the way, regular attenders, I'm starting to expect this. Have your Bible with you. But if you don't have your Bible with you, there's pew Bibles right in front of you, and you can get it, and you can find the book of Exodus. Now, I shouldn't have to tell you How to find the book of Exodus. It's the second book in the Bible. I mean, really. But if you have trouble, I want you to find page 57 in that pew Bible where Exodus chapter 15 is. That's what we heard read a few moments ago. And we are going to look through verses 1 through 8, and we're going to talk about what's going on around it in this section. Um, All right, so... Why again? I want to emphasize, so that you become comfortable with the Bible. There's this idea that the Bible's for pastors and that you as Christians, what you do is you come and you kind of let the pastor do his thing and then you go your way. Now, there may be other church bodies where that's not the case, but I've been in a number of Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod churches now, and it really is like any boy, any man, who happens to think the Bible's interesting, you know what everybody tells him? You should be a pastor. 
I think that's wrong. I think any man who doesn't think the Bible is interesting, you know what you should tell him? You should think the Bible is interesting. Because it is. It is fascinating. It is confusing. It is overwhelming. It is by far the greatest story ever told. And indeed, it will challenge you to know more about yourself than you would believe possible. Because it will bring you things that you find hard to swallow. And you'll have to ask, is this really from God or not? And you'll have to admit that that's the temptation of the devil if you trust what the Bible says about your heart. And Exodus 15 is going to be one of those places. This song sounds really nice. Let us sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. But you've got to put yourself in the picture. This is all of the Israelite hosts, that is, all of the children descended from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to whom the promise has been given that from them will come the man promised to Adam and Eve, who will destroy the power of the devil and free us from death and sin. It is promised to them that he will come from their family, which by this point isn't just a tribe, it's 12 tribes, a great nation, who has been in slavery for some time, not the full 400 years that they lived in Egypt, rather than in the land they were promised all of this would take place in. But they have been slaves, and I'll get back to that story in a moment. That's what the book of Exodus is about. But they've come out of that, and they're there, this great host of people on the shoreline of the Red Sea. Don't let any liberal scholar tell you it's the Reed Sea. That's a complete lie. They're beside a great lake and then some. It is a massive body of water. And they have just watched that body of water split in half with walls of water on either side of them so that they walked through the middle of it on dry ground. Now that alone should make you modern persons stop and say, do I really believe that? Because that's nuts. I mean, really, that's nuts. Why would you believe that? I'm going to come back to that. But they've just seen that. I believe it. Don't get me wrong. I believe it. They've just seen this, this massive thing. But it's more than just that. They didn't just walk through this massive Great Lake Sea on dry land. They were pursued by the greatest power of that age, or maybe the second. You can debate Egypt, Assyria, their great ancient powers. But the greatest power of that age with chariots and horses and bowmen and all sorts of military might, these are the ones who've been enslaving them. They've been pursued by them into that sea, an entire army, hundreds of thousands of men and horses. And they have seen that army be trapped in the middle of the sea with the walls of water on either side as mud begins to form and it captures their wheels and traps them there so that they, the people, escape from the other side following this guy Moses who's doing it all with a big stick, waving a stick around, making this happen. Uh, and they turn around and God says to Moses, put the stick down, put the staff down, put the rod of power down. And what happens? Those walls come crashing down. And that's where the Sunday school story ends. In Sunday school, they don't tell you about all the bodies in the water, the horses floating by, the blood and disgusting destruction that took place. Again, modern sensibilities here. And then... They sing alleluia. They shout for joy. Now this is the question. This is where I think it tests us. That was a genocide. That was an absolute murder. 
How could we rejoice at such a thing? Sing to the Lord, he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. Now, of course, you have to sort of forget that these are people who were quite evil. They were not only the worshipers of pagan gods, making all manner of false sacrifices to gods that are not, which means that they ultimately are worshiping demons. But these are also those who are their slave masters, an elite upper class that has pressed them down only for the sake of taking advantage of them, taking from them, and when they do anything wrong, making it worse. Remember that when Moses comes and says, we just want to go worship in the desert, Pharaoh says to them, fine, you can make bricks without straw. Which, if you don't know, that's like saying making steel without iron. It really doesn't work out so well. And that's the kind of life they get to live in there. And more, let us not forget that within this generation, Moses' own generation, every single boy aged zero to two for a certain amount of time was thrown alive into the Nile, infanticide, murdered for the sake of keeping the people in their place. Do I need to mention abortion and how they use it to keep people down? Anyway, we'll leave that where it is. Let us remember just how wicked these people were and how they had had every opportunity to realize that they were up against a true God who was wanting to show his power and his mercy by letting the people come out to worship him. But Pharaoh, their leader, had hardened his heart. They'd asked nicely. They'd shown with that magical rod, staff, stick, the power of God as it was turned into a snake before his presence. What does he do? He calls a couple magicians, some sorcerers. They throw down their staffs. Oh, look, we can make snakes too. See, big deal for your fooey God. No one notices in the corner as the staff that God made eats the two staffs that were made by the sorcerers, things just go on. But again, Moses comes, fine, we'll turn the Nile to blood. Fine, we'll make a plague of gnats come upon the entire land. Fine, we'll put boils and sickness on everybody. Fine, the sun won't shine on your house, but it'll shine on mine. All this while, Pharaoh hardens his heart. So when you're standing beside the Red Sea, watching the destruction of Egypt, this isn't just about one people beating another people at some kind of ancient warfare. This is a much bigger picture. And here's the key to how to read the Bible when you're looking at the Old Testament. None of it, none of it is just about then. All of it, let's say it again, all of it is about what Jesus does for us. Do you remember in the Gospel of Luke a few moments ago, as those disciples are walking with him to the Emmaus Road, wagging their heads, so sad about what has happened, and he chides them. He says, you foolish ones, so slow of heart to believe all that the scriptures have said, and how they have testified, prophesied, that the Son of Man must suffer and die, and then rise again from the dead? And then it says, you can look at it again, it says, he began to open to them all the scriptures and how they testified to him. That means that every story in the Old Testament, every history in the Old Testament, every prophecy in the Old Testament, however much it is also about when it was happening, is also a foretelling of what Jesus 
has done for you. He is risen. He is risen. Alleluia. So let me give you a really easy way to see this foreshadowing, this typology when it takes place. A good one is it will often make use of water. And that water will often do two things. It will kill and it will save. It'll do both of those things. Just think back a little further in the history to Noah and the flood. Eight people in one boat through water that kills the foe and yet brings them alive to the other side of it. Yes, that's why we have eight sides on our font, by the way, there in the back of the church. Because the church has recognized that with Jesus' institution of holy baptism, go into all nations, washing them with water and the word, there we have the fulfillment of this Old Testament water that kills and makes alive. And we've also seen, as John points out at the end of his gospel, this water is not just any old plain water. It is water included in God's command and combined with his word, which you see as the spear pierces Jesus' side and out comes what? Blood and water. There are two mysteries in the New Testament church, two things we don't understand. Baptism and the Lord's Supper. We don't understand them. They don't make any sense. How can water kill you and make you alive when you're still just lying there like a baby squiggling around? How can bread and wine be the flesh and blood of a man who is also God? It doesn't make any sense. But the thing is, Jesus has said, this is me. Do this. Go there. Believe this. So again, I ask you, do you believe two giant pillars of a lake were on either side of this people as they went by? How can water do such great thing? Do you see how the crushing of the foe is really not about Pharaoh, but about the hard heart of man, our unbelief, and our great enemy, the devil? So that when you sing, the Lord has thrown the rider and the horse into the sea, it's not about the death of Pharaoh, it's about the serpent being nailed to the cross beneath the feet of Jesus, so that his head is crushed. And then even though Jesus was wounded, he walked through the waters of death. All ancient, all ancient religions, including Hebrew, Hebrews. A sea, the sea as a place of death, the, the ocean as a place, the abode of the dead. Jesus walks on the water. Yes. And he goes into the water and he comes out again and nothing can stop him. Can you see that there in this Exodus picture? So that as these people are shouting and rejoicing over the death of the horses, it's not about the death of the horses, but the end of demons and their control over us. And that this has now fully been fulfilled in the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. So that when we sing Alleluia, He is risen. <laughs> Alleluia. We're singing about the same God doing the same salvation. The only difference is we're on the other side of the New Testament. They had to see it in type and shadow. We see it as the fulfillment of all things. Yes? And the whole Old Testament works this way. I mean, just think David and Goliath. It's a great picture of Easter Sunday. You see the unwinnable man, David, a young boy with five stones, just like Jesus, a dead man hung on a cross. What's he going to do against the great enemy? Goliath, a nine foot tall guy with a spear like a weaver staff. Jesus against the dragon who had deceived and defeated our entire race and held us in bondage. What's he going to do? He's going to call on the name of the Lord is what he's going to do. 
And so David says, I come at you in the name of Jesus. And he throws that, that stone and boom, down goes Goliath. Jesus says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Which is not him saying, I don't believe in you. That's the first verse of Psalm 22. That's him saying, I believe in you. I know what I'm doing. And I trust you to see me through this. And what happens? Three days later, his faith is vindicated by his resurrection from the dead. All right, now, with all of that as our introduction, let's spend our last few minutes now looking at chapter 15 of Exodus. I had you open it. It's been sitting on your lap this whole time. Um, Go ahead and go there, and let's try to pull apart some of these verses and see how they connect both to then and to now. And let's also ask those questions about our modern sensibility and ask, maybe, I mean, this is really true. The more that I've been in the Bible as a reader of the Bible the last couple of years, now let me just go ahead and confess this here. The problem with pastors is we get trained to read in Hebrew and Greek. And so at a certain point, you start to feel like you're, you're a bad person for reading the Bible in English. Like, well, I really ought to be doing this in Greek. But the problem is we're not good enough in Hebrew and Greek to just go and read it like fast. Huh? So what happened to me in my ministry over time, like, you know, 20 years, 15 years, um, was I read the Bible less. It wasn't that I never read it, but I never read it just to read it. I only read it to study it. And as a result, honestly, it weakened my faith. Now, when 2020 came along, I kind of had to ask a number of questions. I hope you've asked a few questions since 2020 came along. I had to ask a few questions. And one of the things that came out of that was, I should just read the Bible more, period. I should just do it. Why? Why? Just, Just do it. The more that I've done that, the more I've realized how much my mind has been formed by American assumptions and TV Hollywood culture, not to mention the idolatrous smartphone thing, and not by what God actually thinks. So that question, how could God destroy these evil people in the sea? That's a modern assumption that's quite wicked and quite apart from the way God views his fight against the darkness and against evil. And that's going to be challenged here again in a moment. So I'm trying to set you up for that. Okay, here we go. Verse 1 again. I will sing to the Lord. Now, Jesus is Lord. Not every time that the word the Lord in capitals shows up in the Old Testament does the name Jesus fit. Although like 99% of the time, the name Jesus fits. So I encourage you to remember that the Lord is not just some unnamed God up there in the sky. But this is the Old Testament version of Jesus Christ. I also will tell you that if you translate the word Baal, do you know the name Baal, the great bad God of the Old Testament? If you translate the meaning of his name, you know what it means? The Lord. So just because you call on the Lord doesn't mean anything, actually. People called on the Lord all the time in the Old Testament and they were worshiping demons. So doesn't mean you're worshiping demons. It means, remember now, this Lord is Jesus. Jesus is Lord. I will sing to Jesus Christ for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. We've kind of covered all of that. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. Simply put, this is why you should be reading your Bible. This week, I challenge you, go home, open your Bible, read Exodus 15, verses 1 through 8. Just read it. Do it once. Do it five times. Doesn't matter. Get the Bible open and see that you will be stronger for it. 
I'm not saying you're going to open it. You're going to feel strong that moment. You're going to have a resistance. You're going to be like, oh, I can't do it. Oh, I'm too tired. Oh, it's too hard. Oh, it's so boring. Oh, and you're going to whine. Your flesh is going to whine. And I'm asking you, grow up. Open the Bible. Read it because it's right. And see if doing that for some time, every day, maybe, once a week, for a while, just get it going. It will strengthen you. Because Jesus is your strength in this darkened age, and this is the power of it. Jesus is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him, my Father's God, and I will exalt him. Can you remember that? When you're struggling to open the Bible, when you don't want to do it, this is your God. He made heaven and earth. He's in charge of all things. He is almighty. His eye is on the sparrow. He cares about you more than the lilies of the field. Can you remember that? And that he has then commanded you, read my word, inwardly digest it. Let it be your soul and your life. And that alone, knowing that, is salvation. Everyone else out there right now is running around with their heads cut off trying to save their lives. One way or the other, they are trying to extend and save their lives because they don't have a God. But you do. And you have a God that is not only so powerful, he can save your life in the most impossible of circumstances. He's better than that. He actually has given you the power to not need to have your life saved. He's given you the power to run toward the tomb, to walk into your death with your head held high, knowing it's actually going to be better on the other side. And after that, at the resurrection, it's going to be better still. That's your God. Yes. And you will praise him. Now, verse three, the Lord, that's Jesus. Jesus Christ is a man of war. What? Jesus Christ is a man of war. Jesus Christ is his name. Again, modern sensibilities. One of the great deceptions that has fallen upon the church is that the gospel of Jesus is about being nice. It's not. Love isn't always nice. Love is honest. Love is kind. Love doesn't boast. Love doesn't think too highly of itself. But, but it's not always nice. Is it loving to allow your family to be taken away by raiders as slaves? No, it's not loving at all. It's a neglect of your duty as a father. I'm not saying we have that right now, but we cannot condemn those who rise up to defend their families. We must laud them and honor them because that's what Jesus does for you. He has risen up Hear the connection. He has risen up to defend you because he's a man of war. And so he sets himself against the true enemy. He rules the nations with the rod of iron, but that's kind of a secondary thing. The real enemy is the devil and all his angels, the false teachers, the wolves who are ravenous with seared consciences, who will lie to you about spiritual things to pad their pockets and set about their best life right now. Jesus wants you to join the beautiful war against that, again, by picking up the sword of his word and using that word to fight with your mind and with your heart against the darkness as it is, which means, again, to trust that walking into the grave is actually going to be the best day of your life. Yeah. Jesus Christ is a man of war. Jesus Christ in his, is his name. Verse 4, 
Pharaoh's chariots and his host he has cast into the sea, and his chosen officers were sunk in the Red Sea. Now, we kind of covered this already, so I won't go back to it. Just remember, this is not only about those men. It's about the devil, and it's about your sin. It's about your flesh. It's about every thought, word, and deed you ever did wrong. They have been cast into the sea of death through the precious wounds of Jesus Christ. The floods covered them. See your baptismal talk right here. The floods covered them. They went down into the depths like a stone. Your right hand, O Jesus Christ, glorious in power. Your right hand, O Jesus Christ, shatters the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow your adversaries and you send out your fury. It consumes them like stubble. There's one more picture that we can get from that that is not one that fits with the modern sensibilities of the church. And even though very few churches have officially denied this, it's not something you hear about much anymore. And that is the wrath of God that is coming in fire to burn forever everybody who does not repent and believe that he has saved them. Very few churches have pastors who get up and say, I don't believe in hell. Although there have been a number in the last 20 years, some big names coming out and saying, I'm not so sure that seems mean. This hell idea seems mean. And how can God whose love be mean? But the fact of the matter is, before I even deal with the mean stuff, that's just a bad argument is what that is. The fact of the matter is what scripture says is that God hates evil. Say that with me. God hates evil. See, this is the deception. Do you believe there's evil? They've really got a world right now where nothing's evil. Nothing except for maybe us Christians, I should say. If you believe marriage is between a man and a woman for the sake of procreation, that's evil, they say. They call good evil and evil good. But God hates real evil. And the easy way to see what real evil is, is that it goes against the natural order of things. So as we're talking about marriage, I mean, if you go out and you look at how evolution, I don't believe in it, but how they say evolution works, you know how it works? A male and a female make babies. That's how it works. It's the only way that it works. Huh? It's natural. It's normal. Anyhow, God made the world with a design and he loves it. His design is that you should love your neighbor as yourself, that you should be married and have a family, and that family should be a close community, that you should have your own things which you're able to share with everyone to enjoy, that you should speak truth from your tongue, and your lips will be filled with praise and thanksgiving and encouragement, and that in all of these things you would be content unto the end of everything, forever and ever. That's commandments 5 through 10, by the way. God loves that. And he hates that we don't love that. And he wants to make us love that again. He has gone to every extent to give us that. But the fact remains that there is a wickedness at work in mankind that will not repent. And at some point, those who harden their hearts against this, those who resist the Holy Spirit's gift of salvation and faith, will be wrapped up and put in a pile separated from the sheep as you would separate sheep from goats and cast into a lake of fire that is prepared, not for them actually, is prepared for the devil and all his angels. But guess what? They get to be because they've rejected Jesus. The word angel means messenger. And since they want to teach things that are lies and despicable, they become part of that angelic host of Satan. 
I'm not saying the unbeliever is a demon. I'm saying they're messengers of evil. And so again, back to the text we just saw, Jesus sends out his fury. It consumes them like stubble. Judgment day is coming. And that's part of the gospel. It's what you've been saved from. And on that day, when the smoke of her fire goes up forever and ever, you can look this up, book of Revelation. The smoke of her fire goes up forever and ever. The next words, alleluia. We sing alleluia over hell. Why? Because the horse and his rider, he's thrown into the sea. We're safe on the other side. Nothing can ever touch us again. We're going to live in innocence, righteousness, and blessedness forever and ever. Amen, amen. He is risen. Somebody testify. Amen. Verse 8, more of the same. At the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up. The floods stood in a heap. The deeps congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy, got to hear that as the devil said, I will pursue, I will overtake, I will divide the spoil. My desire shall have its fill of them. I will draw my sword. My hand shall destroy them, right? The devil prowls like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. He shoots fiery arrows at your heart. He has every intent to pull you down into the depths with him. But verse 10, you blew with your wind. The sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. When Jesus Christ walked out of the grave, leaving death behind him, he left the devil trapped there as well. He can no longer ascend to heaven. He can no longer stand before God and his time is short. He knows it. Okay, I got one last thing to do here. Take just a moment before we close. I promised you I would do this earlier, so I need to do it. Why would you believe that that water stood on two sides? Why would you believe that Jonah was swallowed by a fish and spit up three days later? Why would you believe that Elijah could go to this widow's house and have a pot of oil and a pot of pot of flour and there's just a little bit and it would last for three years. As a modern person, why would you believe that? As a Christian, you have one answer. He is risen. Alleluia. All the miracles of scripture are validated by the resurrection of Jesus. If you want to test a miracle, do you remember this? You remember when the Pharisees asked him for a sign? Give us a sign, then we'll believe you. He said, no sign. Just one sign. He says the sign of Jonah, which isn't Jonah, but just as Jonah was three days and nights in the belly of the fish, so the Son of Man, he's talking about himself, the temple that's going to be torn down and raised in three days, the Son of Man will be three days in the belly of the earth. If you want to test a sign, you want to test a miracle, you go study the resurrection. Uh, we have a book back there for sale called The Case for Christ. It talks about this a little bit. We gotta, i got to remember now to get this other one. Did the resurrection happen back there? You go and you look at the history of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, not with a, a, a skeptic's eye where you're like going to scoff at any answer, no matter what the answer is. Go with some objectivity and ask yourself, how do I know George Washington actually was a guy? How do I know? I know the TV says it. Okay, you believe everything the TV says. Oh, they said it in school. You believe everything they tell you in school. How do you know? How do you know Julius Caesar was a guy? Julius Caesar, who lived around the same time. Augustine, how do you know? And what you find, if you go and you look at how you know, there's only one way to know. Somebody tells you, a witness. How do they know? Another witness. So either someone saw it with their own eyes, it's called an eyewitness, or you find some evidence Some of that evidence might be written down. That is, eyewitnesses who wrote it down and then died. 
So the only way to know what went on in the first century is from the eyewitness accounts that were written down. Guess how many we have? Not just the Bible. Not just the Bible, quite a few. And guess what? If you look at all of them, it's one of these things that like, once you do it, it's a little frustrating if you don't like this, if you don't want to believe it, you lay it all out and you're like, well, goodness gracious. It sure looks like he rose from the dead. Ah, I don't want to believe that. And I actually heard, I read a very famous atheist named Anthony Flew. He said it out loud. I appreciate how honest he was. He said, every reasonable thought makes it so that if you put the evidence together, it looks like Jesus rose from the dead. I just can't believe it. I like that guy. I pray for his salvation, but I like how he doesn't say, it's not true, can't be true, blah, blah, blah. You're lying, you're idiot Christians. How can you think that? He has to admit that St. Paul was a reasonable man who had a good case for why he was converted. What was Paul's case? Well, I saw him risen from the dead. Remember how the guy was killing people and then he converts? All right, so I'm getting off topic on the defense of the resurrection here. But why would you believe anything else in the Bible? Because the resurrection happened. Because Jesus is the king. Because he's left it for you to believe as his word. That gleaming sword for you to use to feed your heart in the midst of this darkness. And then, as we come to this table now, to receive a mystery beyond mysteries, something that is unfathomable. The Almighty God, who is Trinity, in one person who became man, who as man and God then died, and then as man and God didn't stay dead, now puts his man, God self, into bread and wine in order to feed your faith. Why do you believe that? Because Jesus said it, and he is risen. Amen. In the name of Jesus. Amen.